For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Thursday, October 5th. If you go on the Max streaming service today, you'll notice a little box for the Bleacher Report sports add-on. Definitely rolls off the tongue. That's a new $10 a month upcharge for live sports from the Turner Networks. TNT, TBS, True TV. Like Max, they're also owned by Warner Brothers Discovery. They've got baseball playoffs, NHL, college hoops, March Madness, the NBA, plus inside the NBA. You can see if Charles Barkley and Shaq are fat or skinny this season. The sports package on Max is nothing you don't already get if you're a cable subscriber. It's just a simulcast. But for cord cutters, this is a pretty big deal. A chance to watch a bunch of premium games without paying for the bundle of channels. And for existing Max customers like me, it'll be free until the end of February. So why is Warner Discovery doing this? Pretty simple. Like all the other media companies, they're trying to use the assets they've got to grow their direct-to-consumer streaming service while not exactly turning their back on the very profitable still linear cable channels. And adding sports to Max is literally a game changer, something that Netflix doesn't offer. Warner Discovery also recently launched CNN on Max, with many of the primetime shows now also streaming. Sports leagues like this because it helps them reach more viewers, especially younger viewers who have either been priced out of the cable bundle or never had cable in the first place. The question is, why are cable carriers okay with this? After all, Comcast, Spectrum, YouTube TV, they pay billions of dollars to carry these Turner networks, large part because of the sports. Last thing I would think they'd want is the exclusive sports content to not be so exclusive anymore. New York Times reported earlier this week that DirecTV sent a stern lawyer letter to Warner Discovery, basically raising that issue about CNN shows on Max, which just launched. But everything will ultimately be on streaming, of course, and Disney is reportedly discussing launching a new live sports tier on Disney Plus outside the U.S. ESPN will eventually be available without a cable subscription, Bob Iger has said. And ESPN is talking about creating this kind of super app that all sports could potentially flow through. A lot going on, so that's why I wanted to have J.B. Perret on the show. He's the CEO and president of Global Streaming and Games at Warner Discovery, the architect of the company's streaming strategy. We're going to talk about the new sports add-on, who it's for, why they called it Bleacher Report, CNN on Max, the consumer-first push, and why cable carriers should be cool with all this. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town.
All right, we're here with JB Perret, who's the CEO and president of Global Streaming and Games at Warner Brothers Discovery. Welcome, JB. Thanks for having me, Matt. I went on the Max app this morning and I noticed a little module on there, BR Sports Add-on, Bleacher Report Sports Add-on, which is starting this Saturday with the Dodgers baseball playoff game. You guys now have sports on Max. So just take us through the strategy there. And the context first I'd said is that, look, the, as you know, the industry for the first, uh, most of the 2010 to 2020 plus uh, went through this great disaggregation, which was in theory pro-consumer, making consumers have more choice, but in the end ultimately added a lot of consumer friction because you just don't know where everything is. There were too many services, too much content. And we look at this as sort of, one of the many building blocks to the great reaggregation decade, which is uh, upon us, uh, and that is ultimately trying to make it simpler for consumers to put more content in one place with a great experience. And so, obviously, we started that 120 days ago with the launch of Max, with the Legacy Discovery, Legacy Warner content coming together. We then launched News last week, and then we launched Sports Today. And part of it is that journey of trying to make it simpler to have all the content you want in one place. And obviously we have portions of it. We don't have all the, the content, but we have a significant portion of it. And sports is incredibly powerful, very passionate fan base. But we ultimately also decided that we want to do it a little differently. We've launched it today in this on us period for the first couple months, uh, where it'll be for five months. Time. That's a while. And then starting in March, you know, you have to pay $9.99 if you want to subscribe. And it's ultimately a acknowledgement that we got to set up a model that works financially. And uh, we look at what's happening in the streaming space today on other sports streamers and say, giving that content, that premium content away for free is just not viable long term. And so that's the, the journey we're on. And, you know, this is just the beginning. Well, it's interesting you settled on 10 bucks because, you know, the conversations that I've seen around ESPN and what that might cost in an over the top environment has been triple, quadruple that. How'd you arrive at the $10 price point? We did. A variety of both research as well as, look, some of the research is helpful. Some of the research has got to be your gut to a certain degree. And um, we wanted to stay under the $10 range. Obviously, ESPN and, and the Disney group have an incredible sports portfolio, a lot more sports than we have. And so we weren't come out with similar pricing as theirs. But ultimately, we felt at the same time we have a tremendously strong portfolio. It's just we have, you know, obviously the NBA, MLB, NHL, March Madness will come in, in March, obviously. And uh, we thought... To the $10 break point is, a, is an important you know, consumer milestone uh, in their thinking. And so we triangulated essentially between both of what we saw, what we think we needed the value to be to make it viable, and at the same time, pricing it in a competitive way uh, to be attractive to consumers. And for someone like me, who is still a cable subscriber, this is not for me. Look, I think that's part of the issue is that we're in this period where trying to figure out how we try and find additive growth, not just substitutive growth. And, you know, the pay TV bundle, back to the great reaggregation and the great disaggregation period, the pay TV bundle was great for consumers in this respect, which is ultimately providing you choice, everything in one place at one price. And you didn't have to sort of think, oh, do I have this? Do I not have this? It's all there. Yeah. Although you could characterize it as anti-choice because you had to take it whether you wanted it or not. Fair enough. Choice-wise, yes, ease of access sure. and, and the fact that video at the end of the day is a business where people want just access. They want choice. There you had it all in one place. Fair enough that you, you had to take everything. 
So we look at it and say, okay, yeah, for the sports fan who wants everything, great. But for the sports fan who's already cut the cord or is not a, a pay TV subscriber, or in some cases, look, and I saw this in our early days at Hulu, when Hulu launched its subscription product initially, the vast majority of people who were paying were cable subscribers. Why? Because they felt the experience, the ease of access, you know, little basic things of just username, passwords, access. They just wanted well, it. Next day access. viewing. If you missed The Bachelor, you could watch it the next day on Hulu. True. So anyway, our perspective on this is trying to add something that's additive to the ecosystem, not subtractive. And, and ultimately, uh, we also look at it as there are fans that will come that are not paid TV subscribers. And there may be fans that come that are paid TV subscribers who just want a different vantage point and a different access point to it than what they get on pay TV. And over time, we want the experience to continue to improve. And part of that five-month period, as you pointed out, is because we're launching today with primarily focus on just great quality live stream. Mm-hmm. But the product experience itself is going to get a lot better. And so part of that five-month rollout is to continue to enhance the product so that by the time we launch a pay piece of it, that you get an even better experience that's unique to what you get on Max that you couldn't get somewhere else. And obviously the timing right there in March is time to March Madness. A lot of young people who may be cord nevers and love the college basketball tournament may be your prime customers for this. That's true. That's true. (laughs) I want to ask a little bit about the bundling question, because part of the problem with sports in the streaming environment is it doesn't have that flippability. You know, the great thing about the cable bundle is, yeah, there's sports on your channels. There's sports on ESPN. There's sports on the NBC channels. But we all knew that we could flip around and the sports were all available to us. Now it's going to be so much more difficult to navigate this as a consumer. You're going to really have to think, oh, where is the NBA on Wednesday nights or on Saturday nights? Where is Monday night football? Where are these premium or Saturday afternoon college football? Where are these sports games? And which service should I open for that? And that's why I wonder if, you know, this ESPN idea of the super app, of creating one sports app that all of the other sports media companies participate in, that sounds pretty compelling to me. Would you guys ever participate in something like that if you didn't own that gate? Look, I think we're very open and pragmatic. As you know, from the last 18 months, we've done a lot of things that supposedly were people thought, no, we, you, you know, you shouldn't do and we've experimented. And so I think this period of transformation in the industry, we, we pride ourselves on trying to experiment. So we, we don't, we're open to a lot of different things that we consider. But I think we're not, and there's a lot of talk about devaluing the pay TV bundle these days. The reality is what you just described is actually the counter argument to where this actually may be all a process of revaluing that bundle, right? Which is, there's a lot of a lot to like about it. Yes, you had to take a lot of content that you may not have been interested in, but you got great value for it because you had everything. You didn't have to think about, all right, well, do I have access to this? Do I not have access to it? You paid a premium for it, but it's great value. And so as the world has gotten more fragmented, in some ways, there's a counter argument that says that's actually helping revalue the pay TV bundle. And we're not in the business. We, we ultimately, look, we want reach. We want ubiquity in terms of getting as many people into our content, whether that be sports, whether that be news, whether that be entertainment. Whether they continue, continue to go through it in the pay TV environment, which increasingly we look as pay TV and streaming as two different audience sets, by the way, 
One is very, very much an older skewing audience and one is increasingly a younger audience. But we want to be on all those platforms. And if at the end of the day, this helps revalue the pay TV bundle, that's fantastic. That's a great business model for us. I would argue there's a lot of people who don't value sports at all that welcome the opportunity to not pay for all that sports. But I get what you're saying about revaluing. I want to talk about the different players in the ecosystem here, because I get why you guys are doing this. You want to grow the audience on Max while not turning your back on the cable bundle. I get why the leagues want this, because it increases the overall audience for their product and brings it to a younger audience. I don't quite understand why the cable providers are okay with this. I've seen you explain this, but how are you pulling this off? Because I've talked to people who say, I can't believe they're pulling this off, or I can't believe they're doing this. Yeah, look, I've had the pleasure of being in the in in, in a lot of these negotiations for you know several decades. So, mm-hmm. and I and I know there's a lot of talk about oh, how are they doing this? Are they rights to do this, etc. The two things I'd say first is at a core at WBD HBO Max at its initial uh, instance, rather than talk about taking value away from pay TV, has only added value because remember HBO used to program at a cost of a couple billion dollars a year of original content investment and obviously movies. And then what we did is said, okay, we're going to almost double that investment, several billions of dollars more for Friends, Big Bang Theory, and now obviously uh, Max Originals on top of that. And we're going to give it to those pay TV subscribers, those HBO subscribers who come through pay TV for no additional cost. And so Rather than taking away value from the bundle, we've actually added a ton of value to the bundle over the last few years since the launch of HBO Max. True. Although they didn't ask for that. They didn't ask for it, but we gave it. We gave it. And so I sure. think it, the one narrative that I think has been a little bit misconstrued is a lot of the conversation, particularly based on the Charter Disney issues, is around programmers taking content away from pay TV. We've actually done the opposite, which we've added to it. Right. And was there a discussion of putting some games exclusively on streaming? Or was that like the lawyers said, no way? Well, no, less to us was about a legal issue, but more about a parity issue. Our view was on both sides. We want to be pro-consumer, so not making it harder, to your point earlier, about even more confusing. Wait, this game is on Max, but this other game is not. So we said, we're putting everything on. That was sort of the consumer side of it. The flip side is, we didn't want to disadvantage pay TV in any way. And we said, look, we're not going to take stuff off like other people have done. So we're actually trying to sort of thread that needle. The flip side is, I get it. In this world of disruption, when we're trying to find consumers, there will be arguments to say, oh, what, you know, you're putting all this content here, you're going to accelerate the impact of cord cutting. The reality is, whether we like it or not, some of that is happening. That genie is out of the bottle. And so we know we are legally fully in our rights to do it. We're trying to do it in a way that is most not, uh, you know, parity, not disadvantaging one model versus another. And making sure the consumer has choice, but ultimately has to pay for the premiumness of the content. Yeah, but they're paying you. You're not sharing that money with the cable companies. I mean, they signed a deal with you that you would provide them with certain content. And the big value proposition of your Turner Networks is the sports. I mean, a lot of the original content on the Turner Networks has been canceled over the past few years. So the sports is really the linchpin of that deal. And now you're essentially telling these cable providers, you're still getting the sports. But by the way, it's also available on our owned and operated direct to consumer platform for a fee that we will take that we will not share with you. 
isn't that going to piss them off? I mean, is is this Times article correct that DirecTV basically said as much in a lawyer letter this past week over the CNN service? Well, the two things is, again, back to the core of where mm-hmm. HBO started. Remember, the, the cable operators make money historically on HBO. And we actually continued that with this sports launch, which is part of the reason also we wanted to give this long runway of this sort of trial is to provide us enough time to engage with our partners on how best we can actually work with them to upsell and potentially cut them in on some of the economics of- Okay, so you're open to paying them. And we're open to having a conversation with them about that. And, And frankly, we needed that runway because it's not just a commercial conversation, it's a technical conversation. We love the fact that if they want to integrate billing and upsell their customers, that's a great outcome for us. And so mm-hmm. we're very open. And part of this runway of, of a several months is to have those conversations with our partners to figure out how best to engage them. And the DirecTV thing, look, the reality is, again, commercial negotiations by their nature are part love and part leverage. <laughs> yeah, the question is, did you see the letter first or did you read about it in the New York Times first? I was aware of it, but it doesn't, <laughs> you know, look, we have great partnerships with them, with others. This is a will always be an ongoing commercial negotiation. And in my experience, decades worth of this is that every partner decides to try and lob in different positions to try and advantage themselves for the next negotiation. But we're confident we'll work through it. We've worked through a lot with all of our partners over decades. So we're not not overly concerned that we'll do uh, the same thing here. Something similar happened in the movie world. Remember during COVID, when all the studios wanted to blow up the windows and start releasing movies directly on streaming or with a much shorter window. Your company was a big proponent of that at the time. Comcast ended up cutting in the theaters on the box office when they take a movie out of theaters and, or at least put it on their premium video on demand tier while it's still in theaters after only a couple weekends. So there is precedent there with sharing the economics. Because otherwise, like I was going to ask you, what would happen if Comcast decided to take your channels and air them on their streaming service. I mean, it's sort of the same conversation. It's still available, but they're just taking some of the economics for themselves. Like, obviously, you wouldn't be cool with that. Look, to a certain degree, the new entrants like uh, YouTube, Hulu, Sling, etc. Are, are, are versions of that. If Comcast decided they, which they've never decided to go out of their footprint uh, and launch a, a true virtual MVPD, We'd have those conversations just like we've done with others who've launched virtual MVPDs. So we're not opposed to that concept, as long as obviously we're getting fair value for the content. But I think, you know, I, I, I go back to how we're doing this. You know, part of the reason why we think this is unique and we're trying to do it in a way that is actually much more constructive for the industry than what's currently in the market. You know, and Comcast is an interesting one, particularly given the NBC ownership and what NBC is doing on Peacock. We're not giving this sports content away for free which is what the others are doing. Mm-hmm. We're, we're eventually going to ask people to pay extra for it. And so we think this is way more constructive and way more friendly to the existing pay TV ecosystem than what's already in market. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan 
The final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Why the Bleacher Report name? What about the data told you to use that? Because that brand doesn't mean anything to me. And I don't think it means that much to people over 40. But correct me if I'm wrong. You may just be out of the demo, Matt. <laughs> I may be, but that might be the point. Is the point <laughs> that this brand means something to younger people? Craig, does Bleacher Report mean anything to you? It doesn't mean as much to me as it used to, but there's But what does the data tell you, maybe? The data tells us, and it's not just data in terms of research, but you know, quantitatively, we look at the user base of Bleacher Report, and it's a it's the most powerful young sports digital brand on the internet. And so we looked at it and said, how do we harness, particularly again under this concept of this is an additive audience that currently is either not subscribed to pay television or hasn't found a way uh, to access these games, that we want to actually find a way to get them access to it. And so we like the connection to the brand It's for two reasons. One is because of that younger demo that it is very powerful too. And number two is it's got a lot of great content outside of the live events that we can bring into the service that make it very natural. So they've got a bunch of content that exists on Bleacher Report on the open internet. So it's not unique, won't be unique to Max, but in terms of an integrated offering, it makes it a much richer, uh, much deeper sports experience than what we put on if it was just the live events. Hmm. Meaning inside the NBA. <laughs> but no, I mean, they have a show with Mookie Betts. They got, they've got a lot of talk around sports, which obviously is... Uh, the shoulder the programming. The shoulder That's program. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Okay. This is obviously going to help, I would assume, in the NBA rights negotiation. You guys are bidding for renewal of the NBA rights. There are several others that also want these rights, including some pretty deep-pocketed streaming companies. I just read that Apple and Amazon are preparing their bids. What is the pitch, and how does this initiative play into your pitch to keep NBA? You said it actually earlier, which is exactly right. Look, the ecosystem overall, whether it's us, whether it's the leagues, whether it's the teams, uh, want to access more consumers. And as the world is fragmenting, the problem is if they're only in pay TV, they're missing a large portion, particularly of the audience and, and the fans that are very important to them, which is the younger fans. Right. They need to be there, but it's not the future. That's right. And so ultimately, this is great for them. Uh, it's great for the teams because it provides better access to more people and younger demographics in particular. So that's a positive. I think ultimately, the business model of sports, forget about the NBA, of sports in general, which has been essentially financed by pay television, is unsustainable the way that you know the secular decline in the industry is going. And so we need to find new models to finance this. And by the way, it's not just the teams and the leagues and, and the programmers. It's the players. Yeah, Mookie Betts needs his 300 million bucks. Everybody in the ecosystem needs to get paid. And therefore, we're trying to figure out ways to do it by bringing incremental value into it to allow us to continue to pay healthy economics because it's great content and it's premium. But, you know, that's the thing. So it's better for the leagues in terms of more reach. It's better for the leagues in terms of trying to find an economic model that is more sustainable than just giving it away for free. And yes, it's got the challenge of, which is unique to the US, by the way. 
the U.S. model where sports got completely jammed into the basic tiers mm-hmm. is not the way it works anywhere outside the U.S. Everywhere outside the U.S., sports has always been sold a la carte. Yeah, you pay. Incremental fee basis. Uh, yeah. and I think That's why our athletes is, make what they make other than soccer. Yeah, but I think that model, as we think about this shift of pay television, continue to move to streaming, is going to be necessary in order to sustain you know, the overall ecosystem. Yeah, that's an interesting point because we take it for granted that the best athletes in the world want to play in the U.S. And the reason they want to play in the U.S. is because they make the most money here other than soccer. And the reason they make the most money is because of the TV ecosystem here. Exactly right. Yeah. And you you had experience on that because you guys own Eurosport. In your, yeah. I mean, we've been, look, we've been in the sports sort of pay TV slash streaming system for 10 years. So this is not new to us. Uh, and we experimented. And by the way, we learned a lot by doing a lot of things wrong in Europe with Eurosport. Um, and we had a standalone product and we were selling it separately. Then we bundled it into Discovery Plus when it launched and we sold it with Discovery Plus. Then we realized that wasn't a good idea and we sold it uh, on top of Discovery Plus. So look, a lot of the back to your actually original question of how did we end up on the 999? Forget about that number specifically, but the whole construct of upselling sports because of this passionate Price inelastic tier of fans is also based on 10 years of experience in Europe uh, with Eurosport and realizing that at the end of the day, you need to have that fan base pay separately. And they will if you have the right passionate uh, sports. And to be honest, it could bring a lot more and new people into the max service in general that may like HBO content or like Discovery content, but not quite enough to subscribe. But you put sports in there and then that's the change maker exactly right so do you think the nba is going to go with three partners four partners four different packages what's your thinking on that right now it's hard for me to comment uh on that but i, I would what are they telling you in negotiations <laughs> i look I, I generally think the leagues they and and others by the way uh and we saw this uh by the way in in the uk where we held 100 percent of the rights for the champions league through our BT Sports joint venture uh, in the UK. And the league loved the idea of the simplicity from a consumer perspective of one place that has everything. Mm-hmm. Back to the beginning part of our conversation around not making it too hard for consumers to find. But in the end, you know, in this last round of renewals, we were able to secure 90% of it. So we have the vast bulk of it. So you can't have the Champions League, you watch the Champions League without now TNT Sports in the UK. But 10% of it, they sold to Amazon, which was great for us economically because we feel like we still have all the majority of it. If you're a fan, you have to have us. But we're able to pay less because ultimately you had a third party come in. So I think that dynamic is very possible and would work well, frankly. What if it's flipped and it goes 90% to Amazon and Apple and then 10% to you? Well, I don't think we're probably in the 10% business, frankly. <laughs> Do you think ESPN will be hurt if they sell ABC in the NBA rights negotiation? Because that's always been the carrot they can dangle. They can dangle broadcasts for the finals. Look, there are other ways to do those kind of deals commercially. You can mm-hmm. do it. You don't have to own the right. broadcast. They could have a guarantee it. that even if they don't own ABC, whoever does, they will put the finals there. Yeah. So the short answer is yes. I think it's doable. You know, is it nice to have it all in one place? Yeah, probably a bit. But I don't think it's a showstopper. But, I, you know, look, so at the end of the day, I think it's more... Is it possible to have a new entrant? Uh, yes. Do I think at some point the leagues are also conscious and the NBA is super smart about this is they don't want to have too much fragmentation because they're not trying to make their fans work excessively hard to find stuff. That's not a good thing for them. If people have to literally can't find where things are because they don't 
gone off platforms they used to be on, et cetera. That's not good for their fans. They also got to get young viewers to be able to watch these games. I mean, having it all on linear is a non-starter, I think. Yeah, and the reality is, you know, and this is credit to our sports team, Luis, we've had such a, I think, one of probably the longest programmer league relationships in the world between the NBA and TNT. And the shoulder program we were talking about, you have Shaq, Chuck, uh, Ernie, that team, they're synonymous with this at this point. And look, it's not to say some things can't be replicated over time, but you don't build that franchise over decades. And, and no, ESPN's it. tried. Their show sucks. Well, I don't want to say that. You can say that. <laughs> My word's not yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's move to news here. How is the CNN product on Max doing? What does the data tell you so far? It's been up a couple weeks? A week. A little week. over a week. Here's what I'd say it, it confirms to us, which is, mm-hmm. A, we're, we're thrilled with having gotten it off the ground, gotten it off successfully. You know, as I like to say, new feature or new product launches, you know, the one thing you want from a product standpoint, that it'd be a boring launch. Our team has done an excellent job at delivering on that, which is we had news launch without a hitch. We're obviously underway on sports and hoping to obviously the rest of today and then obviously Saturday goes similarly. So that's great. Yeah, wait till there's an insurrection or something and everybody is going to try to find the news there. Well, but that that's what we're seeing. And, and we said this, and this is partly why we launched it as a beta, is the reality is we have a lot to learn. This is a new use case. Streaming generally has been a you know sort of on-demand, heavy, entertainment-focused experience. So this is new. And part of the reason we put it on a beta because we knew it was new. But does the Max audience want news? That's the fundamental question. The two positive indicators. A, we have seen spikes and over that seven days culminating in uh, two days ago when uh, the speaker stepped down. Sure. Audience growth, like significant audience growth. Uh, and so we're seeing positive trend, even though, again, it's we're, we're, we're barely crawling at this point still. Yeah. I think it'll be slow. I mean, ultimately, these services will just be TV and people will learn that when a big event happens or when you got to get your Anderson Cooper fix, you can go to Max and it'll be there. But it's going to take time, I think. Here's what I'm most encouraged by so far, a weekend, our record audience and record viewership. And not surprisingly for news, we always said this, breaking news is going to be where this habit gets formed best. Mm-hmm. And we've had, you know, between the last minute government funding on Saturday and the uh, speaker sp- stepping down on Tuesday, two big news events. And sure enough, what we've seen is each time a higher peak. And so, look, we- we've got a, such a long road ahead. But generally, I would have been very discouraged if I had seen sort of flatline. But yeah, we've seen exactly what we hope, which is breaking news events, important news events, peak audience is growing. And early days, but we're very encouraged by what we've seen so far. All right. Appreciate the time. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Greg, it's here. The Exorcist reboot. Exorcist Believer. The project that Universal spent $400 million acquiring the rights to this. And uh, it's finally here. Moved a week earlier to avoid Taylor Swift. And uh, the review's not great. No, but I don't think we should read too much into it. I think the Exorcist brand has a lot of power. And with the Halloween reboot was a huge hit. At least the first one was. It's the same director, David Gordon Green. I think we're all overreacting to the, to the early reviews. Okay. So the tracking is at about 33 million. Universal says around 30. But let's split the difference and say the tracking is like 31, 32. 
That's not great for a reboot of a horror franchise. They brought back an original star, Ellen Burstyn, and the Halloween reboot opened to more than double that. They spent so much money on this just to get the rights. Fun fact, Morgan Creek, the production company that had the rights to The Exorcist, they got more than $100 million, I am told, for doing basically nothing. They just had the rights. And Blumhouse is making the movie, and their filmmaker, David Gordon Green, is getting some of that. But not bad. $100 million to do nothing. That's an aside. I'm actually going to take the over. I agree with you. I think that, you know, if, the, if we're looking at a 30, 31 million opening, they got to outperform that. I mean, the freaking Nun 2 got to, what, 23 in its opening weekend? Like, this is a one of the premier horror franchises. Now, it's old, and they've done reboots in the past. They've done sequels. You know, this is technically a sequel because it's got an original character in it. Uh, I, I just, uh, I don't think it's going to be nearly as big as Halloween, but I think it's got to do more than 31, 32, right? Yeah, I mean, the movie's old, right? The original was in the early 70s, but Halloween was old. Same thing. And that did just well, fine. Jamie think- Lee Curtis, though, is different. She is a star associated with horror movies, and they brought her back for that. Ellen Burstyn is not really a draw in the same way. Also, she's not able to promote it because of the strike. So it's not quite the same thing. So I don't, I don't know. You know, Blumhouse, I have heard that they are disappointed at Universal and Blumhouse with the fact that this never quite caught on in the same way that Halloween did in the run-up. And they thought this opening would be much bigger than 30. Yeah, I mean, that might affect also the legs of this release. But I think opening weekend... If you well, and they want to make fans, two sequels. They said that right, they're going to make two sequels, either for Peacock or theaters, depending on, on how this does. That's sort of justified the high price for the rights. But, you know, if this doesn't perform, who knows? If you're a fan of horror, you will be seeing this movie, is my opinion. Maybe. A lot of horror in the marketplace right now. Saw, none, but we'll see. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, J.B. Perrette. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week.